Welcome back to the Military Museums podcast. I am joined today by our Air Force curator, Allison Mercer. Hi, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Uh, we're going to be talking today about a thesis that you wrote for your master's degree. That's right. Uh, specifically called Calling Forth Fighting Spirits. Now, you sent me a synopsis on this uh, thesis. Yeah. And um, I'm hoping you can uh, detail what this thesis was supposed to be about and is about, um, just so we can have a little bit of a preamble before we dive right in and me asking you a little bit more specific questions. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. no problem at all. So uh, the general gist of this project was a sort of a, a means of studying military leadership. And of course, throughout history, people always, uh, you always hear these stories of uh, famous military leaders like Napoleon and, you know, General Slim from Britain, Montgomery. And uh, people talk about these these men in various ways, and they say they were charismatic or they were cold and hard to work for, but brilliant. And um, studying military leadership is very difficult because historians are reluctant to kind of tap into these more emotional aspects of war uh, with that don't have necessarily, like, like, the technical information or the actual, like, the solid factual evidence to form opinions and theories and hypotheses hypotheses from so yeah it, it is hard to evaluate because it's hard to find good empirical evidence to say this person was a good leader because that varies from case to case to case so and this yeah. thesis is your attempt to do that yeah it is yeah with two of um canada's generals from the second world war okay so, yeah so a master's thesis is a uh is, is a long and in-depth it is uh, piece of work it is in order to just produce the the very work itself you have to i think really just immerse yourself in yep. this material and it's really difficult to do that if you don't if you're not really interested in it that's so a, yeah huge what drew you to this particular topic in general? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, kind of from as far back as I can really remember, I've always been very fascinated by individuals from history who can be considered charismatic and compelling. So like, what is it about these individuals that makes them so? And uh, why do they interest me? Why did they interest other people at the time? And when I was um, actually in late undergraduate at the U of C, uh, studying some of the uh, Canadian generals, I, I found that there was a couple coming out, um, specifically um, Guy Simmons and um, Bert Hoffmeister. And Bert Hoffmeister, for some reason, kept standing out as a very compelling leader, and I wanted this kind of tapped into my other extant interests and sort of these um, personalities, and I wanted to um, understand why, why was he considered a really good leader. Those are the two generals, yeah. Bert Hoffmeister yeah. and Guy Simmons. That's correct. Who yeah. you have decided to yep. uh, examine. Exactly. In this uh, in this leadership uh, framework light. So we as you mentioned in your synopsis, we've all heard of General Arthur Curry. Yes, of course. Of first the World First War. World War, yeah. yeah. Um, Vimy Ridge, the, the man of Vimy Ridge, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Though officially not, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is it about these two specific generals that makes you want to compare them to uh, each other, uh, I guess. To each other, and yeah. I guess to a lesser lesser extent, a, a man of a basically mythic status is General yeah. Curry. Yeah, which he would be, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, Canada likes to pat itself on the back for having Curry in the First World War. We Give sure do. Oh, yeah, I know. We take what we can get, and we're a little bit slim on all fronts for kind of compelling, interesting, fascinating leadership in the military. Uh, we've had very good ones, mm -hmm. but nobody really kind of stands out. We don't have any, you know, Eisenhower's or... 
God forbid, Patton. But um, yeah, but the Canadians tended to be a lot more subtle in a way. And we flew under the radar as far as big personalities go, but that doesn't mean that we weren't super great. So the case with these two guys is um, they're both generally held by historians. Some of the, a lot of guys writing on military history like uh, Jack Granitstein, um, Douglas Delaney, um, John English as well, um, to be, it's kind of a toss-up between these two about who was Canada's quote-unquote best general in the Second World War. And of course, none of, neither of these will have Curry status, but I, I personally would argue that Hoffmeister was probably almost a better, much better leader than Curry. But Curry's got, of course, the, uh, the, the famous standing from the First World War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about why we should know about these two guys before we start getting into what makes them the yeah. leaders that they are. Right. Um, what, what should we know them for yeah. in history? Okay, so, uh, yeah, to start with then, uh, Guy Simmons, um, Guy Granville Simmons, he actually is uh, a member of the permanent force in Canada, the PF, and uh, which means that that is sort of the regular army as we think of it today versus the reserves. So uh, he went to the Royal Military College in 1921, and then after he graduated, he joined the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery and stayed there until about 1939 when he moved over to England to go to Staff College. So um, that's his background at the time. So he's an artilleryman. They have a reputation for being very intelligent and very aware that they're intelligent. And he was no exception to that. So in contrast, um, Bert Hoffmeister, B.M. Hoffmeister, uh, he was from Vancouver, so on the West Coast. And Bert Hoffmeister in comparison, was a militiaman, so think of the reserves today. Yeah. And he had started actually as a cadet with the Seaforth Highlanders out there. They've got their really nice armory. It's over close to the water. Very, very nice location. And um, sort of progressed up through there, and then he joined the regiment afterwards um, once he reached adulthood and um, went on from there. So, of course, with the reserves, you're always working a civilian job in conjunction to your military training. So he had a lot of insights from the civilian world about people management and um, leadership that he was bringing into his military position as well, which I think helped him out. I can't imagine how it wouldn't because not everyone who joins the military is used to Yep. Being that kind of a soldier, being that kind of a person who just accepts, especially at the outbreak of war when you have yeah. to get people from every walk of life. Yep. So it would be, uh, I think, very beneficial to have someone in such a position of it leadership. Is. Yeah, and people actually talk about this um, sort of in the broader historiography of Canadian officers in the First and Second World Wars, where they kind they tend to compare uh, men from the militia, i.e., Arthur Curry as well was a militiaman, um, to, um, yeah. Again, Burhoffmeister, and uh, I believe there was Matthews as well. He was a brigadier. He was um, from the militia as well. But pe there's this, this this theory came up that um, soldiers that came from the militia were a little bit better socially adapted to deal with the challenges of leadership. Mm -hmm. So, and I believe they called it the militia myth. So, so it's just one part of it. There's also the the adjoining myth as well that militia soldiers make. Um, better uh, better soldiers in general because they're volunteering their free time to serve their country. So there's all these kind of mythos that come up uh, from this, and it's yet to be proven whether or not that's the case. We know where they're from now. Yeah. What did they go on to do? Where where would uh, Simmons have been deployed? Yeah. Where would Hoffemeister been deployed? Where would we... Where What 
what theaters of combat would we have seen them engaged in? Right. So it's actually interesting because uh, Hoffmeister actually ended up working for Simmons uh, when they went into Sicily. So Operation Husky was the invasion of Sicily in 1943. And um, I believe Simmons was the commander of the... So both would have gone into Sicily at the same time um, in the 1st Canadian Infantry Division. Simmons was the general officer commanding at the time, and uh, Bert Hoffmeister was with the Seaforth Highlanders, and he was their CO at the time as well. So later on, Simmons uh, in the Italian campaign went on to be the commanding officer of the 5th Canadian Armoured Division, and then after that, he left for Europe to take up command of the 2nd Canadian Corps in uh, June of 1940, or sorry, January of 1944 as a lieutenant general. So Hoffmeister, of course, continued with the Sea Force throughout Sicily, and then his ability became quite obvious right away, so he was appointed to be commander of the, of the um, 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade, and this was in November of 1943. It was only three, three months later that he actually got the command of the 5th Canadian Armoured Division, and I believe that's after Simmons had left for Normandy and Northwest Europe. So they would both take command of different armored divisions. That's right, yeah. yeah. It was, it was the same one, which is interesting, because you see kind of issues that come up with the 5th Canadian Armored Division once Hoffmeister um, assumes command, and there's a few problems that he has to sort out, so I don't know if they were lingering from before or not, but it's interesting anyway. Now we know where they are, and because they become essentially armored commanding generals, yeah. that's, I think a really good way to compare apples to apples. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah. If they're especially they're like they're under the same roof. Yeah. And they're they're in the same unit so we can actually see because it's very difficult um, in a lot of ways to de- to compare an American general perhaps to a British general. Yeah. And um in yeah. a lot of ways shapes and forms. But that's that's a really interesting thing when you consider leadership because mm-hmm. um, it's universal. Good leaders are good leaders almost universally. Bad leaders are definitely bad leaders almost universally. So even um, with Simmons off doing his thing in Northwest Europe eventually after 1944, and at this point Hoffmeister's still in Italy, kind of mopping up north of Rome, um, you can still like ultimately compare the two because mm-hmm. of the um, um, sort of the influence that they could have on subordinates. So absolutely. Yeah. So with that. With that little notion of yeah. uh, influence on subordinates, yeah. uh, we can talk about these um, characteristics of leadership that you had mentioned in yep. your thesis itself. Right. Um, ones that, if I'm going to let my nerd brain talk for just a second Go here, ahead. Um, yeah. reminded me a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> okay. uh, your stats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> things that are really, really difficult to quantify. Uh, yeah on like a sliding scale sure is uh, yeah. like charisma brilliance and, yeah. and coldness yeah. are the three that you had put forward to me yeah. specifically so these are ones that you are reluctant to uh use yeah and um most everyone is can we uh can we talk about exactly the definition that you might uh so we're all on the same page though yeah. for 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 these three different uh facets uh, how right. would you define charisma in this in the context of this leadership? Yeah, because the three of them are fairly amorphous concepts, the best thing that you can actually do is take a, a sort of a pre-established leadership model yeah. and apply it to that. Mm-hmm. So charisma, of course, every follower has kind of their own individual needs and their own ideas of what charisma is. So while one thing might be charis- charismatic to some individuals, it's not. It's a repellent to others. But generally, to kind of avoid the ambiguities with terms like those, um, that's where the model comes in. And the model, of course, it's pretty much just a checkbox model. Did they have this? Yes or no, kind of depending on the evidence. So 
yeah, if you want, I can talk more about the model and the way it works too. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to do that in just one moment here. Okay, no problem. Um, because I do want to talk about what these um, what these three words yeah. really mean and why yeah. Uh, yeah. historians don't want to touch them. Don't don't want to touch them. Yeah. Some of them fall back on them because I hear a lot of like, oh, he was a very charismatic leadership. He was very brilliant. He was very right. cold and distant. Um, what does coldness really mean? Yeah. Yeah, and I know. Like yeah. you're right. The, the word amorphous is very, very apt in yeah. this situation because I think you can call each of these three different things. I think they're the same thing. Yeah. They can be synonymous with each other. So it makes it a very, very difficult way it to, does. to grasp yeah. uh, certain things. So yeah. when we apply your empirical evaluation yeah. to uh, leadership, what does that look like? Your, your checklist. Yeah, the checklist yeah. in that case. Yeah, that would be the model. Um, and again, it kind of just, it, it creates sort of a, a vehicle for the empirical evidence that we otherwise couldn't, like you can't really fit, um, you know, how do you measure charisma? Again, like I said, it's an individual, um, individual opinions. But with the model, um, this particular model, it was actually recommended to me by my supervisor, Dr. Alan English, down in Kingston. And uh, he said, you know, if you're going to study leadership, you have to have something like something, a universal thing to compare everybody to. And that's this. So um, the model that he recommended was actually called uh, Conceptual Foundations. And it was came from a Air Force manual. So um, it is, uh, it's a position and power model that came from uh, a book called Leadership in the Canadian Forces Conceptual Foundations. And the origins of this model actually come from a study done by Gary Uckel um, in leadership in organizations. And so essentially there's two components to this model. Um, there's position power, which is based on your position. Position power includes things like positional authority, which is dependent on rank, um, reward power, you can give people rewards, promotions for doing well, uh, coercive power, this is your punishment power, uh, ecological power, and information power. Ecological power is control over the environment, living conditions, things like that, supplies, and then um, information power is your access to information, um, the information you have coming in is how can you disseminate that to your subordinates. So there's that type of power. So position power is one with its five different subcategories. And then there's personal power, which only has three, but personal power is um, three subcategories. This is where the charisma comes in. Right. So initially there's expert power, which is how much do you know about your job? Really, really important in the military. Then there's referent power, and this is probably the closest um, example that we get to actual charisma. So the referent power is that's where the charisma comes in. That's where you can measure it. And lastly is connection power. So who do you know that could benefit your subordinates essentially? It's a little bit complex, but uh, we'll get there. Well, in order to, I, I imagine in order to evaluate not just a, a person, but a person in such a position, um, if, it were, if it were too simple, that would seem uh, glib. Yeah, in a, in a lot of, of course, ways. exactly, because yeah. it's very, very complex thing, yeah. and that's what's fascinating about it. If we were to look back at maybe, uh, I don't know if this is in, involved in your uh, research itself, but if we were to look back on uh, how leaders have been evaluated uh, throughout history, yeah. uh, where would most historians have landed on this on, on this sort of a scale? Would they have used an empirical evaluation scale like this, or would have they would they have stuck to a more emotional yeah. look at the... Which, which side do most historians tend to land on yeah. throughout 
history, I guess. Well, I think it, it's important there at, at the start, too, to make the distinction between popular historians who kind of write the book scene in, like, in chapters and in indigo yep. versus academic historians. So you'll see a lot more of kind of leadership study, not specifically the study of leadership, but say biographies of General Lee, Napoleon, whoever, and it'll discuss in there about whether or not they're charismatic and throw around these terms, right? Like the Walter Isaacson biography of uh, George Washington. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, very popular history yeah. versus the academic historians who kind of dabble in it in a bit, um, but they're kind of more concerned about sort of other broader themes of military history at the time. So um, to them, leadership is not really a, a study unto itself. I think it's because they haven't figured out yet how to do it uh, with that empirical base by using a model. Mm -hmm. So so now that we kind of know yeah. what our uh, what our empirical uh, basis is, yeah. and this is the one that you personally would mm -hmm. subscribe to. Yeah, it's yeah, it was suggested to me by uh, Dr. English, who definitely knew what he was on about, and right. it worked out well here. Yeah, because there are certain things about the human condition that you yeah. can't put down in a rubric. Yeah. Uh, so, what gives a empirical evaluation the edge over a say more meditative yeah. evaluation? Yeah. What, what gives what gives your rubric a little bit of an edge over that? Yeah. Well, people always want in history, especially if you're trying to have an argument about something, and of course that's an academic argument, um, is you want proof, and you need in order for that to happen is you also have to have a way of measuring this proof. So if you're going to compare two men, you have to kind of have a model that you can apply to both and determine, okay, he was better because he fit the model better than this other guy. You can't just be like, um, you can't just say that, you know, five or six soldiers wrote nice things about this general and only one soldier wrote nice things about this other guy. It, that doesn't really okay, but what about everybody else? You know, how do you measure this kind of thing? So, yeah, so you need a measurement, and that's what this is. We find proof. Yes, exactly. In the measurements, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's kind of roundabout, but... No, yeah. it, it, that's, a, that's great. And I think that falls back a little bit to my comment on the apples to apples. Right, uh, yeah, and that's what it essentially is coming down to, yeah. And, and so let's dive into that, Yeah. shall okay. we? Sure, um, yeah. Who would you like to start with? Okay, um either honestly like the best way to go about it is just sort of um sort of take take snippets of uh um the various different types of power that um, these men had and then sort of talk about how they fit or how they didn't fit so of course both um eventually become generals so both have a lot of position power inherent in their rank so of course that just comes that's a given anybody in any kind of position of authority has that naturally according to the model so the power that comes with rank is uh, referred to as legitimate power. And both men, you could see that they had sort of different ways of exercising that. The interesting thing about Bert Hoffmeister, of course, with his background in the militia, is morale and the morale of his men, everybody from his, his men, like his, his officers right underneath him, all the way down to the privates and the regiments in his division. He was always concerned with morale. That was his thing, because he knew that morale was intrinsic to combat effectiveness. So everything that he did as a leader was tied into morale. So when he was tapping into his legitimate power, say as Major General of the 5th Canadian Armored Division, it was interesting, actually, once he took up that position, he noticed that the Perth Regiment there, 
um, I think it was 11th Canadian, the 11th Canadian Infantry Brigade, the purse were with that one, with that brigade. He knows that they had a kind of crucial morale issue and there wasn't much confidence that they seemed to have in their officers. And he couldn't get anything from the officers themselves. So what he actually did was take two men, I believe, from each platoon and sit them in a room and say, okay, you're not actually leaving this room until, me, until you tell me what the problem is. And it turned out, of course, this is an exercise of legitimate power. These privates aren't going to say no to a major general. Heck no. So, and eventually they told him that, yes, we don't have a lot of faith in some of our junior officers. Um, we're, we don't feel safe going into combat with them. So he actually removed these four officers and then morale just improved after that. So that's legitimate power. It's interesting because Guy Simmons didn't really consider morale. He was a very cerebral man. Um, very profoundly intelligent, very, very sharp. But as far as normal human emotions, he didn't really get a lot of that. And that to him wasn't very important because it's just not the way he worked. So Simmons believed that discipline um, would produce good morale because he thought ultimately that you can't make men do the big things in battle if you can't make them do like the small things like, you know, polishing boots and keeping their kit in order, that sort of thing. So for him, that was the way his brain worked and that was the way that he kind of... Um, approached um, his legitimate power, so things like holding inspections, making sure everybody was smartly turned out, the whole works. So on a, on I guess a basis of legitimate power. Yeah. To me, it seems like uh, Hoffmeister yeah. kind of comes out as as understanding. Uh, yeah. Has a more fluid understanding of what that means. Yeah, definitely. To, to hold a position of legitimate power. Yeah. Like um, yeah, it was definitely more, it was a more human exercise of legitimate power because yeah. he understood sort of more the emotions that his subordinates might have had and, um, you know, wanted to kind of tap that versus Simmons who expected himself and everybody else to do their jobs and that was at the end. So, yeah. yeah. One of the, uh, one of my favorite subcategories of position power is actually ecological, so control over the, the situation, um, environment, things like that. And um, Hofmeister, I was actually with the 5th Canadian Armoured Division in Holland. Um, there was going to be a trench foot outbreak, it seemed like, um, with the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade at the time. And I guess most of the men were up on top of a sort of a salient somewhere in a fairly precarious position. And he knew that, okay, if this trench foot gets any worse, these men aren't going to be able to fight. So we actually had... Um, these tanks run up socks, supplies of dry socks, up to the men. So, you know, it seems like kind of a trivial thing, but if it prevents you from getting ill and you cannot fight, and it certainly would help morale at the same time, like, it's it's kind of interesting there. Yeah, your soldiers can't fight without feet. No, exactly. No. Yeah. <laughs> the feet, people have always said historically, feeders, the, like, the feet are the most important part. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, in, in, that, in that particular case, I imagine that... Uh, ec ecological power yeah. is um, one of the more difficult ones to contend with. It can be. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Very, and, very hard. And how I look at that is like you're in a position where you have to, uh, you don't really have much power over your environment. You sure don't. Nope. Even even if you're a general. Yeah. Because you have to make do with the environment that's given the, to you. That's it. Yeah. And um, close with has stuff to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and, and so. It's it's like, how do you best maintain that? Because That's you totally can't create 
you cannot yeah, your environment you you literally you have to work with exactly what you have and you have to make decisions kind of within that parameter and keep making them until it's the right decision mm-hmm. yeah just uh, again going back to ecological too mm-hmm. um yeah simmons struggled a little bit with that um because he couldn't understand um like he had a basic understanding that yes people needed to rest but he was also part of it he was also very very good at grasping kind of the big picture so when they were in normandy and afterwards, when they kind of had uh, the, the enemy on the run a little bit, he wanted to kind of press forward a bit and um, press the attack, as it were. And um, some of his uh, brigade commanders were saying, look, we need a break, just a, a small break to regroup and, you know, get rested up a bit. And he actually said, no, we can't yet, because if you guys think you're tired, guess what? The enemy's probably even more tired than you are. So he wanted to push on. And, well, like, this kind of instigation was probably not a bad thing it's still it's it's really the nuances and the trickiness of war sometimes is so it's such a hard call because um do you rest your men and then pursue the enemy later do you pursue the enemy while the enemy's tired so it's just often it's just luck of the draw that kind of a call does seem that kind of an order to keep pushing on because the enemy is yeah. even more tired it seems very uh, calculated Yeah, and that's exactly the sort of guy he was. Yeah, and it worked for him, and a lot of people were impressed with that. The higher-ups, like Montgomery, for example, Mm -hmm. thought that he was probably the best that we had at the time. Um, Yeah, a lot of people said, yeah, that's that's the way to do it, but tell that to the guy sort of, you know, in the mud. Yeah, Yeah, I know, who's like, I haven't slept for, you know, 64 hours. Yeah, Yeah. so, yeah, but again, it's it's dependent on the situation, and it's military, too, so, Mm -hmm. yeah. So you mentioned uh, several other different uh, mm-hmm. breakdowns. Position power is a little bit formulaic just because it yeah. kind of comes with the position, obviously. Yeah. But personal power is like the more interesting part. Yeah, let's yeah. talk a bit about personal power. So uh, we'll start there with Simmons and his expert power because um, he, like I said, was a very intellectual man, very cerebral. Um, a lot of people actually argued that um, his... Um, his seemingly coldness at times was actually a cover-up for being quite shy. But as subordinates who are trying to do jobs or work for this guy, you don't always appreciate the fact that, okay, he's not a nice person because he's actually struggling because he's shy. So you mostly just care about the fact he's not a nice person. But his expert power was huge. And uh, a lot of his, um, I think actually even way back when he was with the um, first Canadian horse artillery, I believe it was his, the adjutant or something, uh, recalled just the way, the, the quickness. He'd get this complex order put down in front of him and he would have it in his head just in two seconds. Okay, this is how we can do this. Or creating training plans or whatever for the regiment. Or, and it was just like the speed at which he could process was apparently phenomenal. And retain information and um, do kind of creative things with the information to solve problems. He was very, very intelligent that way. I think one of the issues with Simmons, though, is he kind of, once he had his plan in place... That was the plan, mm. and he couldn't necessarily tailor it as the engagement develops. So that's one of the things about you know any kind of combat is you have to literally change your plans on the fly because it's always changing. Improvise so and adapt. That's why that's right constantly. Yeah. So Simmons had ref- had expert power in the in in the bag definitely. Hofmeister did too. Um, he actually had a tougher time because coming from the militia, militia training has never been as thorough as training in the regular force or the permanent force. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, he actually found um, once he got with his regiment overseas um, and realized, yes, he would have to lead it into combat in Sicily, he actually had a minor nervous breakdown because he realized that he, there was some really basic elemental command stuff that he could not yet do. Um, He was getting into the bath one day, didn't realize that the bath was cooking hot, put his 
put his foot into the tub and got quite burnt, I guess, because the water was so hot, but he didn't feel it because of this kind of nervous breakdown. So he went out, he got some manuals, he asked some people and pretty much taught himself like the bits and pieces of information that he needed to know before they went in. So, and people respected him because once, once he knew everything, he understood the nuts and bolts of the job very, very thoroughly. You, I think you have to kind of admire that sort of a thing because going out and actively oh, pursuing yeah. the, the mm-hmm. knowledge that, that, that you didn't have yep. um, is a way of, well, I guess telegraphing that you were admitting to yourself that you yeah. need some, you need to learn, yeah, and you're going out there to do that. And a lot of people, yep. just don't have the um, are too proud. That's exactly it. To admit yeah. that they're missing things, that they don't know something. That's exactly it. But he knew that he was he was enough out of his own head that he realized that the lives of the men in his regiment depended on his capability, and if he wasn't capable, that was going to get people killed. So, and he, yeah, he had the foresight to know that and the foresight to try to go out and improve it essentially. So, and so I think that 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 ability to uh, the awareness yeah. to do that might make up for his initial lack of training training yeah. and expert power yeah because he's willing to go out there oh huge and improve yeah. his expert power yeah yeah i think um with the case of Hoff- hoffmeister there's never really any case where like he didn't know what he was going to do but more just that the opportunity wasn't there to learn the specific skills because the interwar canadian army at this time of course like most interwar commonwealth armies was very underprepared for the war so training was lacking equipment was lacking the whole works um even like a young like an officer corps that had any kind of military ex- like combat experience was lacking so it was you're used to kind of cruising along at this level and suddenly you're 30,000 feet higher and you have to get used to operating at that level so it's it's challenging yeah yeah not everybody can do it no um what other uh, branches yeah. of uh, p- of um, personal power. personal power do we have? Yeah. So um, with referent power, then um, this is the equivalent of charisma, essentially. Um, inarguably, Hoff- Hoffmeister had the most, and it's just based on recollec- recollections, kind of from his subordinates. And uh, referent power is, of course, is the power to make your subordinates feel as though they're appreciated, as though they matter. Um, he would do even basic little things like just thanking thanking his men for their efforts and things like that. Um, There's one issue, I think, in um, Sicily, actually. There's a radio operator on top of this hill um, with for the Sea Force, and uh, Hoffmeister could tell that uh, um, this guy was scared when he went up to use the radio. So, hey, he thanked him for his efforts and then sent somebody up to stay with him as well. So it's just sort of that consideration of other people that really kind of cements that power. And how does uh, Simmons maybe look in comparison to that? He's a little bit less, well, actually, fairly bit, fair bit less um, compared to Hoffmeister in terms of referent. But um, there's actually one interesting incident. I believe it was in Italy still. Yeah, and it was uh, Brigadier Char- uh, Chris Folks at the time. Chris Folks is um, he? He's another Canadian general from the Second World War and has kind of a kind of a slight Patton-esque reputation as being a bit of a bravado kind of thing. But anyway, so Folks was working for Simmons at one point, and he was worried that he had lost pretty much the entire Edmund regiment down into a town somewhere in Italy during an engagement and it was nighttime and I guess he'd called up um, headquarters in this giant panic being like I think they're all dead I've messed it up and um, Simmons came on the phone and just said you know what it's nighttime they're probably sleeping don't worry about it it's all fine and 
that there kind of lowered Volk's stress level and his agitation about that. So, yeah, he could be when he understood that somebody was in quite extreme emotional distress and when it was presented to him kind of on a face-to-face basis or via telephone. But if it was just like day-to-day stuff, like he, I guess at one point, drove past some casualties that were laying on the ground, some wounded, and some of the soldiers made comments that he didn't stop and see how they were and things like that. But I think if it was like more of a personal one-on-one basis, like he could make that emotional jump and be like, okay, this person needs that support right now. So in a war, specifically like the first, like the the, the Great Wars, yeah. World War One and Two, you are as a general in command of so many yeah. young men yeah. who some of them have volunteered, some of them are career military guys, some of them have been conscripted. Right. And you basically have to send down the orders for them to make the charge, yeah. go on a mission. Right. Um, you have to weigh the cost benefit and you get like casualty probabilities beforehand yep. Yep. and you have to make that call. Yep. And where does that reasoning fall in your uh, leadership Rubric. Yeah, it, it's a tough call. I don't recall with these two men in particular coming across any instances where they struggle with it apart from Hofmeister's, um, his issues prior to Sicily and the invasion there. Yeah. Excuse me, with his regiment. Um, but generally, I think um, in order to be a good leader as you, uh, as a, and a good commander as well, so you just have to be very pragmatic when it comes to that. Yeah. And, you know, losses are a thing that happens in war. It's the way it is. And if you do your job the best you can, you will have minimal losses. You will still have losses. But if you try as hard as you can to get everything right as best you can, then you can prevent that. It's a it's a position I could not even imagine being in. Right, yeah. Just because of the, uh, I guess, scope. The responsibility of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's very, very, very interesting. Um yeah, and it's unfortunate, too, because I think sometimes the military, and this has been echoed by uh, Norman Dixon, actually, in his book on the psychology of military incompetence, um, you could argue sometimes that the military attracts people with weak egos because they feel that medals and uniforms and positions of power will give them influence that they can't otherwise have because they have weak egos, and it's sort of a sense of self-validation. So these weak egoed people aren't necessarily, and usually aren't, the best material to command and to send men to go, men and women to go and do these kind of jobs because they're in it for themselves, they're not in it for the team. So, versus then you get guys like Hofmeister who do not think of themselves in the slightest, it's always, what do they need? What do they need to do their job? We've talked about many different uh, categories of of power. Yeah. And what it comes down to is, I guess their effectiveness mm-hmm. in the field. Sure does. I pretty much wrap it up by just saying that because leadership is an integral com- co- uh, integral component of command, then it means um, ultimately that if you had to pick the best commander, it'd be Bert Hofmeister because he was a better leader. Mm. So battlefield results, I think, at the end of the day, speak for themselves. But sort of the study of what sort of impact you've had on people's lives, I think, is it's a little bit more nuanced. And again, it's why it's hard to tackle. So, definitely. Yeah. Uh, do you know anything about their lives post-war? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, less so uh, Simmons because um, I, I believe that he just. Uh, I think he, I think he stayed on. Um, it's been a while since I dealt with this this history, but. Um, stayed on in the military, and I think he got out afterwards. Hofmeister went back to his civilian career in the um, lumber industry in BC, and um, he also became honorary colonel of the Sea Force eventually. And uh, it's actually interesting because my dad, 
we're from BC as well. And uh, my dad's got a friend out there who used to work for Hofmeister at his uh, his lumber business. And um, this this guy, I can't remember, um, was it Lindsay? I think his last name was Lindsay. Showed up for work one day, and his wife had just had a baby. So poor Mr. Lindsay was all unshaved and looked a bit unkempt. And I guess Hofmeister <laughs> used some of that legitimate power and said, what are you doing showing up looking like that for work? You know, you, you look like you look, you look like trash. So anyway, this guy explained, well, my wife just had a baby. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, but still it was like, no, okay, this is, this is, this is the way we do things here. So um, kind of interesting. And um, yeah, and he just, I believe he stayed out there till his retirement and death, so. Right. Yeah. I think I already know the answer to this next question. Why do you think this is the first time I've ever heard of these guys? Mm. Because Canadian history, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Canadian military history. Okay, it's not Vimy Ridge and it's not Arthur Curry, so yeah. of course you haven't heard about it. Yeah, generally because um, both of them kind of flew under the radar as far as flashy personalities go. Both could do the job reasonably well, um, arguably Hoffmeister better than Simmons. But yeah, they don't have the same press as people like Patton or Montgomery or Curry from the First World War. So it's just what we choose to focus on. and. Because I can tell you, before this conversation, yeah. I think I've I heard of one, maybe two generals yeah. on the Canadian Corps. Who have you heard of? Queer R. Okay, yeah. And I think yeah. that's about it. That's, that's literally it. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's as best as you're going to get. And to be honest, it's not a super shiny example, but anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's another story. Anyway, he was all right. And that's just because I see a lot of, new, I, I've seen a lot of um, post-Dieppe newsreels. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. And, yeah. And he's involved in that. Right, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, a couple guys involved there, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's like. That, that's it, and it's um, yeah. it's always interesting to me when uh, these these stories get brought up, and I, as a Canadian, I think a lot of people yeah. uh, who would be listening to this podcast or have an interest in Canadian military history at all, yeah. w- this would be the first time yeah. they would hear about uh, Canadian two. general in right. World War Two. Yeah, yeah, legit. Yeah, even General Canadian military World War Two. Like, who do we hear about? Like, what are who are the famous names? That's like, a that's a very good yeah, point. Yeah, I've heard a lot more about World War One. Oh yeah, of course. Than yeah. than World War Two. It's interesting. Yeah, and I think it's a uh, I think it's a topic that uh, based on this conversation, I'm gonna start to explore Sweet. a little bit more in uh, cool. follow up podcasts because I don't think there's enough about. Uh, World War II. There's not and no. Canadian involvement therein. Yeah. I'd like to just say thank you uh, so much for stopping by and talking cool. about your thesis yeah. to, to me for no a little worries. bit. No worries. It's it's quite far removed, but uh, yeah, happy to help anyway. And I, I really did enjoy the study. All right. Well, cool. fantastic. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. We'll Appreciate have you it. back on. I'm sure. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank you again for listening to the Military Museums podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and of course you can also listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your ear content. Now if you have a comment or question, as always, you can email the show at themilitarymuseumspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.